Good morning, everybody. It's Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer here at Efficient Market Advisors. This is a weekly economic and market commentary available via uh, email with slides and narration or as a, an audio podcast available in all the podcast formats. Today is Monday, September 27th. Um, as a quick reminder, everything here is designed for use with both investors and financial advisors, each of whom are expected to make their own investment decisions. Nothing contained in this presentation is investment advice, nor should it be treated as such. There are no recommendations at all for the purchase or sale of any securities. Everything you're seeing and hearing is for informational purposes only. Its accuracy, adequacy, or completeness cannot be guaranteed. So let's get into it. Last week, S&P 500 rallied back up about a half a percent. Mid and small cap led the way. There's this ongoing theme about sort of Russell 2000 or S&P 600 small cap stocks outperforming the big growth companies. Big cap tech is what it is now. Tech is really when you add up the tech in the tech sector and the tech in the financial services sector and the tech in the communications sector, it's arguable that big cap tech is about 50% of the S&P 500 market cap nowadays. So this little uh, shift in leadership to the small cap names has been talked about, called for. Question is how long will it last uh, as we've got you know the end of September and earnings season is coming up here relatively uh, soon. International markets gave back a little last week with biggest losses in emerging markets down 1% and now back into the red for the year on emerging markets. Also, we, we after the announcement from the Fed at the FOMC meeting, it became all but clear, and we're going to talk about this in the presentation, that tapering is upon us and will likely begin in November and end rather quickly, get down to zero, probably mid uh, 2022 or even in third quarter, as late as the third quarter, but it's definitely coming. As such, uh, bond market began to uh, sell off a little bit. Uh, the curve began to steepen a little bit. Uh, we got to a one and a half on the U.S. 10-year Treasury. Uh, so with that, let's get into the economic data. There was a lot of data on residential real estate. Residential real estate is important to all investors. Most of us own homes and the value of that home, what we're trying to buy one, uh, obviously is very, very important uh, to our overall balance sheet portfolios. National Association of Home Builders Housing Market Index, which had been on a little decline, you can see here, for a number of months. Actually, this was the first increase in five months, but it's all been at a very high level. This north of really 50 is expansion, north of 60 is really good, and north of 70 is just out of this world. And so it went to 76, that was two, two ticks above the expectations. Uh, why did they feel a little bit better? Starting to see some relief in, the, in a number of the material costs that go into the building of the home. So the home builders are feeling a little bit about that. Lumber, E-R, L-U-M-B-E-R, eased, while the demand remained very strong for houses. Okay, staying on the same theme, Housing starts and permits, uh, starts rose about 4%, well above the 1% estimate after a pretty big drop on a percentage basis in July. Um, this gain was due to a big jump in multifamily, but multifamily is very, very volatile. So we're going to just put that to the side for a minute. Um, so 
Everything looks fine there in on the housing side, of course, except for prices if you're trying to buy. Existing home sales themselves were expected to come in at 5.89. It came in right about there, 5.88. That was a 2% drop in the annualized rate. Still suffering from very, very low inventory and high prices, deterring buyers, making sellers, of course, very happy. New home sales perked up about 1.5%. That was more than expected. Annualized pace of 740,000. That's down though considerably from the nearly 1 million annualized pace from just about a year ago. But July, uh, which was, was originally at a 1% gain, got revised higher to about a 6.4% gain. So that was really a big pickup overall because of the July revision in new home sales. We all know that new home sales any home sales, not just new home sales, are very largely driven by the ability for a buyer to obtain financing. And it's the payment that is often considered the price of the home, not the home itself. Payments are more often than not derived from the yield on the 10-year treasury, U.S. 10-year treasury. Um, for the 30-year fixed payments, some of the adjustables are, are taken off of other trading, uh, other uh, shorter maturity treasuries or LIBOR, et cetera. This is a longer term five-year chart of the U.S. 10-year treasury yield. See it peaked back in 2018 at about three and a quarter percent. It was already trending down, sort of bottomed, heading back up when COVID came upon us and a big, big old recession and uh, yields dropped all the way down to the near 50 basis point level. In fact, just in August of 2020, we got did get down to about 50 basis points intraday. I believe we got below. These are closing, um, closing yields. We were slowly climbing and rallying back up. Uh, April of this year, we got to 170. We actually had an intraday print of 175 because that was my actual short-term target to begin legging out or extending um, some of the maturities of our of our. Uh, the duration and maturities of our fixed income portfolio here. Uh, but with the rise in the Delta variant, some slowdown in some economic factors recently, we saw that 170 get all the way back down again to a pretty low level. Since then, however, climbing all the way back and got to one and a half this morning uh, prior to me printing this graph, but you can see there 148. I drew this sort of channel uh, trend here because a number of people are asking me about where we think rates are going. And rates are a very difficult thing to predict, but it does appear that at least in the intermediate term, there is a new slow grind trend higher. I have originally said, you know, 2% uh, by the end of this year, even two and a quarter, given what's happened over the summer, I would, I would say that target is a difficult one. but. The next level of resistance where I think we'll definitely get to the to this year is that 175. And if you get to that 175, it's not really hard to get to about 190, 195 right up here. I don't know that that's going to happen in 90 days or 120 days, but clearly in my view, um, the trend is, is up. Uh, the, the Fed won't start raising short-term rates anytime soon, but they're going to cease purchasing long-term securities or immediate-term securities, I should say, uh, and by ceasing to buy, uh, that's $120 billion a month of purchasing that the Fed has been undertaking. 
That's a lot. That's 80 billion in treasuries, 40 billion in mortgage backs. And what they announced uh, this week was that, um, without saying it, because they wanted to give themselves, you know, wiggle room, uh, they're going to be, begin to reduce those purchases in November or December, probably November, and get down to zero very quickly. So if they if they're currently at 120 billion, you take off 15 billion a meeting, you can get there uh, in about a year. So uh, they did say in the statement that came out from the FOMC last week, that was the biggest economic event of the week. They acknowledged that while many adversely impacted sectors of the economy have shown improvement, they've not fully recovered, which is why they're not ready to raise rates, which is why they're not in a really in a hurry even to taper. But they had to acknowledge the rise in inflation. And you have a number of really smart economists looking at the Fed's statement about the transitory uh, being everything being largely transitory. I get it in the PCE it is in the CPI, not so much. Uh, owner's equivalent rent is a big part of the CPI. And so we're all getting concerned that in the Fed's you know, desire to foster full employment, they may let that inflation run a little too hot for too long. Of course, that benefits the US Treasury greatly. We also noticed in the statement a switch from if progress continues about this is they're talking about tapering. If progress continues, we'll taper. That's what they said in the previous uh, meeting notes. But in this one, they acknowledge that they have made progress. And the Fed chair has always said we need substantial further progress. While they didn't say that in the note, uh, in the subsequent interview, he was asked, have we made substantial further progress? To which he replied in the affirmative. So I think that told the market pretty much for sure done deal taper in November. Um, and we think it's going to go pretty quick, like I said, about a year. Other data last week, initial weekly claims for unemployment disappointed. We were looking for 320,000, we got 350,000, and continuing claims for unemployment were up pretty substantially, up over 100,000 more people on continuing claims for unemployment. We got the two flash PMIs from Marquette. Uh, they said they send those out, you know, near the end of the month, and then they get their final PMI. At, you know, we'll get that on Friday from them. That'll be October first. But uh, the manufacturing, which is about 15% of the economy, fell from 61 to 60.5. Not substantial there. That's still a great number for manufacturing. Services, however, continued to decline again from 55.1 to 54.4. Uh, still above 50, she'll still showing uh, expansion. Other big news on the week is what's going on in China and, of course, the U.S. debt ceiling. So these are all going to affect impact uh, markets here uh, coming up. Chinese regulatory crackdown is, I think, there is a wide dispersion of opinions on what's really happening over there. So Glenn Ambach, our co-CIO, put this slide together this week. Uh, he says that the crackdown is driven by issues such as competition, anti-monopoly practices, data protection, and economic inequality. They're cracking down on, say, for-profit education, for-profit tutoring, trying to smooth and make things more equal in their economy. Uh, because they have this one-party totalitarian rule, they can make decisions very, very quickly. Sometimes maybe that's good. They're also dealing with um, a bit of a debt crisis. There's a large uh, property development firm called Evergrande that uh, has missed some debt payments. 
where we know in the U.S. that you know the government can't just step in and do things without votes and discussions and committees and Congress. Uh, the Communist Party can do things uh, quickly, which I guess sometimes can work out to their advantage. Um, but despite that sort of heavy-handed crackdown, we're also seeing the capital markets continue to be opened and market practices and ownership, private ownership, continues to increase. They're really cracking down on some of the things that we actually want our government to crack down on here, too. They just can't do it unilaterally. It has to go through Congress. One of those things is big tech's reach around privacy, data security. China's going to get there probably before us. Uh, they're working on, you know, healthcare. Um, I mentioned the for-profit education sector and a little bit uh, on the property sector regulation. So China, some of what China's doing might end up being good for investors and with valuations and stocks being down so much in China, it's time to take a look at China for when they get through this. In the meantime, here in the United States, we've got issues with our debt ceiling. Once again, for those unfamiliar with this, the, the debt ceiling was originally created in 1917. So it's been over a hundred years by the passage of the Second Liberty Bond Act. It's been updated many, many times in the 30s, the 40s. And then in 1979, Missouri Senator, or was he a congressman, Kent House or Senate, I can't remember, Dick Gephardt, I think he was House, uh, deemed that the debt ceiling, uh, he passed the Gephardt rule, the debt ceiling was raised whenever a budget was passed. So essentially, they got rid of the debt ceiling just by having a budget. That was repealed by Congress in 1995. But all along, the debt ceiling has been raised. It's been more than 90 times last century, the 20th century alone. It's never been reduced, even when there have been periods where we had a surplus and the outstanding debt declined. But really, the 1995 debt crisis and the shutdown of the government, what that began the modern era of what we do now, which is 25 years of getting up to the ceiling, Secretary of Treasury sends a letter and then another letter and then another letter to the leaders of Congress says, hey, we could have a problem. Um, back in 2011, we hit another one. And if you recall, the debt was downgraded of the United States uh, of America. And just like clockwork, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, former Fed chair, sent a letter, another, it's her third letter of the summer to the Congress saying, hey, we've got basically until the middle of October. Um, and you say, well, why haven't we heard about this for a couple of years? Well, back in 2019, we actually suspended the debt limit. The debt limit is still at 22 trillion, but because it was suspended, we bought another six and a half trillion, borrowed another six and a half trillion. That was extended through July. So we are back to a debt limit of 22 plus whatever we borrowed during the period of suspension, which is six and a half. So we've got about 28 and a half trillion with a T debt outstanding in the United States, that's going to have an impact on markets over the next, let's call it four weeks, three to four weeks. In addition to that, I've mentioned before, uh, I thought September would be choppy. It probably will continue to be choppy. We have earnings um, estimates that have not been revised to reflect the potential for tax hikes in the corporate sector. I mean, we picked up 200 basis points of margin from the tax cuts. So maybe we give up 100, 150 on this tax hike, that's gonna to have to impact things. The debt ceiling impacting the government's ability to spend, 
may be may have some short-term negative impacts and may have some long-term positive impacts. But all of that is likely to continue to impact markets uh, for the rest of this month and into next month. But juxtapose that on a backdrop of tremendous aggregate demand in the economy. It's just a great, strong uh, consumer um, economy. Okay, today we've got durable goods. We've got home prices on Tuesday, along with consumer confidence. Wednesday, home sales, jobless claims, second quarter GDP revision on Thursday, along with the Chicago PMI. Friday, we get into October 1st. We start getting August data. Uh, we got PCE prices. We got markets, uh, final PMIs on, uh, on manufacturing and services, consumer sentiment and auto sales. The following week is when we'll get the big jobs numbers, et cetera, for the month of uh, September. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll be back to you again, of course, next week.